Hello everyone and welcome to Footprints and a very happy new year to you all. In time-honoured tradition, our first episode this year is a look back at 2023 and what a joy it's been for me to listen again to a year of such treats. More than 40 Bath-based enthusiasts and experts have shared their knowledge and passions, everything from wildlife to well-being, art to archaeology and forests to farming. They brought us enormous variety and depth and at times unexpected surprises and I want to thank them for making each show so captivating to listen to. So, curl up somewhere warm, grab a mug of something hot and enjoy just a few snippets from last year. Let's start back in February when our episode focused on living and working in Bath. Stuart Burroughs set the scene at the Bath Museum of Work and local artist Diana Ahmed talked about her art project celebrating Twerton. But in this clip, I headed up to meet local historian Mark Batterham, who excitedly showed me around the Moorlands estate, which he describes as one of his favourites in the UK. It was the first council estate planned after the Second World War when bombing had destroyed three quarters of a million homes. Nye Bevan was the housing minister and he wanted good homes built. He called them homes not hutches. Mark takes up the story and talks about the launch of the estate. We're almost at the top of the hill. We're almost yes. in the woods. Yeah, yeah. So we're on the corner here of Moorfields Road and Chantry Mead Road. We're looking at some houses over there on Chantry Mead Road and one of them was the final house handed over to the local authority and the initial um, completion of the scheme and it was handed over to Nye Bevan. Wow. And Nye Bevan stood on that uh, wall that we're looking at now and gave a speech to the assembled masses and dignitaries and um, proclaimed how proud he was of moorlands and estates like this and their uh, record. We know that various sort of conferences that Bevan would go to, he, he, would, he would brag about the Moorlands estate. And uh, so as a result, it, would, it achieved national fame and he, he was very proud of it. Oh, yes, this is a quote from Bevan around the, around the same time, which is, um, sums up the attitude at the time, really. Was, he said, we, we should be judged for a year or two by the number of houses we build. We should be judged in 10 years' time by the type of houses we build. So that's what, that's what they were getting at. You know, they wanted really good quality for people. So the houses are set back from the street and you've got these green apr- aprons in front. Some of them are quite deep, like on Chantry Mead Road. And they've used a few architectural tricks here which work really well, um, sort of projection and recession. So it's not just a single line of, of housing. Yeah, they're beautiful, aren't they? The houses go up the hill. Yeah. Each one is set forward from the next as it goes up. Yeah. So you get different angles. Yes. So we're coming back down the hill yeah. to Willow Green. Yes. And the other thing is here, right here, you know, you've got this beautiful view right over to Lansdowne. Yeah. But while we're stood here, if I may, just, we could just see uh, on the other side of the road here from the school is a, is a monkey puzzle tree. And there's a great story about when Nye Bevan came here in 1949, the very early months of 1949, so it still had been winter. Um, he, he opened this, uh, the, the final house of the estate at the top of the hill there at Chantry Mead Road. And he's walking down here with his entourage. Uh, and uh, there's, 
outside one of the houses, the one just past the monkey puzzle tree, was a chap called Joe who was sat outside, <laughs> sat outside his house in his string vest, smoking. Um, and I had stopped and um, and asked Joe about his experience of moving into the estate and what it was like. And it was many of the stories that Bevan got from Joe that he would then recount at later conferences in uh, nationally about the estate so we mustn't have, you know we could talk about these grand figures and that are involved we mustn't forget you know people like joe i think we should have a plaque for joe as well i mean not least for sitting in his string vest in january and february <laughs> looking at the plastic good for joe <laughs> yes let's start a campaign for plaques for nye bevan and joe in March, we celebrated art in the landscape and I met up with a number of artists using watercolour, collage, cartoon, illustration and more to depict the magnificent outdoor landscape that surrounds Bath. Dan Merritt started us off at the Victoria Art Gallery telling us how 18th and 19th century artists had chosen to paint the landscape at that time. In the same gallery, I met up with Jessica Palmer, who showed me her stunning pictures in her Wetland Spring exhibition. Beautiful watercolour collages of the Somerset wetlands and creatures that live within the reeds and the water. And the episode took a surprising turn when cartoonist Perry Harris took me to the top of a tower to be interviewed. But in this clip, we hear from Marion Hill, an illustrator who produces exquisitely beautiful identification charts of beetles and bugs, mini beasts and pollinators, butterflies and bees. Here she is. My name's Marion, I'm an illustrator and the last two and a half years I've been illustrating all the insects I can find in and around my home in Bath. So it started off as a project I thought would take a couple of weeks and now I'm two years in and I've illustrated over 150 species and that's only just getting started. So I have learned a lot because I didn't know anything when I began. Really? And you've brought some posters here today, some beautiful, well, they're not posters, are they? I mean, they're boards with the most luscious bugs and beetles on one of them and butterflies on the other. Tell me about those. Yes, I'm working with Bathscape and we've been putting posters up in parks and in different playgrounds and we're working with schools because most people have absolutely no idea how many species there are actually in the city. And we see lots of nature programmes that go into foreign countries and jungles but actually in our own urban gardens and parks and even on pavements in the cracks between things there are all these incredible creatures that are busy um, working away and we just don't notice they're there so the project is really trying to draw attention to how important insects are the diversity in our city and then making people realize how vital they are because when I started, like I said, I didn't know anything. I didn't know we had dung beetles cleaning poo away for us. I didn't know there's beetles uh, that cleanse and sort out dead creatures that are you know, rotting in your garden. I didn't know that there's loads of pest control beetles that sort out aphids and eat slugs and snails. So I think if everybody knew how many amazing things there were living in their garden, then they'd want to protect them. And that's really what we're trying to do. And you're a lecturer in, on the illustration course at UWE, but what led you to be so interested in, I think Beatles was your first love, was it? Yeah, I organised to take a group of my illustration students to the Natural History Museum in London. I've got a friend, Helen Hardy, that is working in the digitisation department, and their aim is to photograph and get online all 80 million specimens in the museum so that they can be a tool for research internationally. And... 
The staff were amazing. They gave me and the students a tour round and one of the departments they showed us was the insect department in the vaults in the basement. And the head curator gave us an incredibly interesting talk about climate change and why research and sharing information is important. And I think that stayed with me for a couple of years, really. And then I realised that I could use my illustration skills to help highlight the diversity of insects in our city in Bath. And I could do the sort of same thing, that I could communicate to the local people what we have, and then we could start protecting it. So all your bugs and butterflies are local to Bath, is that right? Nearly every single one. I've been working with a local entomologist, Mike Williams, who has been incredibly helpful to me because I didn't know anything to start with. So I spot things and then he tells me what they are. And when I illustrate, he tells me if I make any mistakes. And uh, he gives me species lists when I'm looking at a specialist area. So, for example, I've done a poster all about pest control and waste disposal experts that are beetles, and he helped me with a species list. So, with the help of so many experts and friendly people, the project's really growing bigger, bigger and bigger. I couldn't have done it without help. So, your, your drawings, which are absolutely stunningly beautiful, and there's, you can see them on the Bathscape website, and you can see them on your website. I imagine you have to be very accurate then. Yes, I realised quite quickly that if I wanted the help of the entomologist community, they have to be accurate. So whereas in my previous life as an illustrator, I could use a lot of artistic um, licence when I made my work, I used to collage landscapes and things that weren't real, so I had no need to be accurate. But for this project, because the illustrators are being used to identify species, it's really important that they're accurate. So for the first time ever, I've had to pay minute in, you know, detail interest to try and get everything right and what do you use to paint with well anybody can do this at home I don't actually paint at all I cut up old magazines so all my illustrations are made from magazines that people have given me and old photographs and photographs now that I've taken of textures that look like they're insects or even photographs I've taken of real insects now I have a little photo macro lens on my phone that I click on if I see something and I photograph the bug then I get them printed out when there's a cheap deal and I collage using the printouts and old magazines and bits and bobs so anyone at home can use my technique there is nothing fancy about it it's just snipping paper and sticking it down with a craft glue like PVA that's all it is but they end up looking like photographs Um, so yeah do try it at home and I absolutely would love to work with lots of schools and see what kids can do making their own collages of local insects it would be great fun oh you can see marion's charts on the bathscape website now many of our episodes include a walk and in april lucy bartlett led a wonderfully squelchy walk for students up at the university as part of their be well week in this clip we hear three students telling me why walking and being in the outdoors was important to them Later in the episode, you can hear Chris Pound talk about the great spa towns of Europe and the different ways in which the landscape has been thought of as therapeutic. I'm a student ambassador for the University of Bath's wellbeing team. So I help to create, think of and put on services and events for students, especially in Be Well Week, so to promote mental health but all throughout the year as well. And this is one of the events that students could partake in in Be Well Week. Tell me more about what happens in Be Well Week. So in Be Well Week, the wellbeing team from Student Services put on lots of different events, whether that be workshops and mental health advice 
or something like this event, so the wellbeing walk, just to promote good coping mechanisms and activities for students. I mean, we hear a lot about how young people have suffered really through the pandemic and yeah. beyond with their mental health. Would you agree that that's happened? Oh, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, students from all ages, all backgrounds, everyone dealt with the lockdown and the pandemic differently, but students especially uh, found it quite difficult. Despite the weather, it's just magical out here, isn't it? The view down through there with all of the moss, it does feel rainforesty or prehistoric, really. I mean, ferns have been the same evolutionarily for millennia. They so, predate trees, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And so you're looking at quite, you know, it could have looked like this thousands of years ago. Wow. This is another really good place to come in summer, particularly if you like wildflowers. So you've got pyramidal orchids here and um, common spotted orchids. So f again, from about late May, early June, they're just all over this area. So, and it'll be much drier through the woods. So well worth coming. Why have you come today? Um, well, I've been volunteering with Bathscapes for about five weeks now. Um, I do the weekly walks on a Wednesday morning and um, I saw that they were doing a walk, the wellbeing walk with the university, so I thought I'd come along to get a bit more experience. Brilliant. I think wellbeing isn't necessarily, you know, just being happy all the time, but it's about being able to overcome challenges it's being able to take the difficulties in life and find a healthy way to adapt and overcome them. And uh, how important is it to you to be out in the countryside like where we are at the moment? I think it is really important, obviously, for exercise, which is also really important for your mental health. And... I think it's just a good opportunity to learn more about your surroundings and the beautiful history behind it all. Where's home for you? Birmingham. Birmingham, OK. So Bath's very different to Birmingham, I imagine, is it? Yeah, it's very different. There's a lot more countryside here. And do you get out a lot? In Bath, yes, because there's lots to do and explore here. A little less in Birmingham. So are you a keen walker or do you like to do something when you're outside? I enjoy going on walks. I'm happy to either kind of go hiking style, like on a mission to go and find something, or to just kind of go slowly and look at any of the interesting things you see on the way. So during the pandemic, I actually went back home and I really noticed the absence of like outside opportunities like we have here. So that was one of the main things that I wanted to be doing during lockdown, like going on nice walks and enjoying being able to be outside and still kind of see the world, but there weren't as many options to do that in a natural way where I was living. And I guess, you know, you didn't have all your fellow students around you. 
No, fortunately I had friends from home, but it was a little isolating at times. Yeah, and a lot of students have found that, found that must have found that really hard, I think. Yeah, we had a lot of support here at Bath. There were a lot of community things, so even when you weren't on campus, you still felt like you were part of it. But it's definitely nice being physically back and around people again. Oh, thank you, and good luck with your finals, which must be coming up, are they? Yes, so thank you. <laughs> In May, I had the great good fortune to meet a lovely, lovely lot of wildlife enthusiasts. I discovered Newts with Lucy Bartlett, Ribbon the Robin with Mike Williams. Alan Rayner literally got me down on my hands and knees, peering at mosses and lichens, which through a small hand lens looked like fabulous coral reefs. Helen Hobbs explained how the Chalcombe Toad Patrol works, and Karen Renshaw showed me a rare fern living near her house. But this is a clip of Catherine Turner getting me to peer right down into the long grass and discover a whole new world where our spiders live. So where are we heading? There's some fields further down towards Englishcombe itself and there are, yeah, there's an abundance of spiders there. One of the biggest is the wasp spider um, that's found locally. Um, there have been more and more sightings of across the UK and that's really... That's one of the biggest ones in weight. I don't know the actual weight of them, but they're one of the heaviest spiders in the UK, so their bodies are quite large, coming up to two centimetres in size, not including the legs. Gosh, that's huge. They're very impressive, and yet they're very, very difficult to find because they, they build their webs in long grass. And some of the smallest might be... There are some that are less than a millimetre across when they're adults. Wow. This is just a, an untouched open field, so it's an absolute haven for, for wildlife. It, they, I don't, haven't seen anything cut back here at all, so it's, it's amazing. The old plants from last year, they've still got their dried up flower heads, and that's an excellent place to find spiders and, and the like. Let's go and have a look. A little retreat here on the flower head. That's a species called Dictina. Dictina? Yes, yeah, they're quite abundant. So when you're looking, are you looking for webs? Yes, yeah, quite often. But I will also get on my hands and knees and sort of look down at the ground level and it's amazing what you can find just doing that as well. Have you always got down on your hands and knees and looked into the grass? Uh, yes, I used to do it as a, as a child. I used to go out in my parents' back garden and I used to see what I could find there. Can you remember the first time you saw something that really excited you? Well, I, I do remember finding a beetle and I, I looked it up and it turned out to be a devil's coach horse beetle and that was a very exciting sort of beetle. They're quite fearsome and I did actually try and keep it as a pet when I was very small <laughs> and that was until uh, I realised that it could actually give you a, a little nip. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes, it's got quite strong jaws and I, I released it quite soon after that, <laughs> back into the garden. <laughs> If you were doing some PR for spiders, because, I mean, out of all the creatures, spiders seem to be the one that people are scared of. What would you say to turn them around? Um, be curious about them. Try and find out more information about them. Anything you read in the newspapers, they're always really, really terrible slant on, on the spiders. They're very, very anti-spider. And that just 
makes you even more scared what you can read. But in the UK, there's there's no spider that's venomous enough to to harm you. The worst ones will be feel like a bee sting, and and that's it. What do they bring to the world? Well, they're ac- absolutely excellent pest control in your house. So they'll eat things like flies, will they? Flies, um, any sort of bugs that you've got in the house that you you don't really want, you know, sort of insects. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll mop them up. So when you see a spider at home, leave it where it is. Some spiders prefer to be outside, but yes, just house spiders and and the cellar spiders, the long skinny ones that you get from your ceilings. Yes, absolutely, leave them be. <laughs> leave them be because they're going to clear up all the, the bugs. Well, what eat spiders then? Birds, I guess, don't they? Birds, other spiders. There are some little spiders that specialise in eating other spiders, in fact. They're (gasps) called pirate spiders. Hmm, cannibal spiders, who knew? Now, trees are a passion of mine, and I'm sure they may be of yours too. And they became the focus for our June episode. Hugh Williamson took us on one of the new urban tree trails, and we also heard about upcoming festivals, the Forest of Imagination and the Festival of Nature. The episode finished with Joe McSorley, the lead ranger for the National Trust, showing me around Pryor Park Gardens. Here is a clip where he's telling me why the gardens were made and what the trees were used for. Obviously, back in the 1700s, if you were very wealthy, you you didn't have a lot to spend your money on, so you, you couldn't buy Lamborghinis and uh, Ferraris or go on exotic holidays by by first class airline. So what you did is you um, you bought up land and you turned it into pleasure gardens, um, often in sort of um, Greek style or Roman style. Um, and here the cascade connects the middle lake to the bottom lake, but it's more about the sound. So there's a, there's a whole visual aspect to it because it looks pretty, but also they wanted to hear the sounds of nature. Um, and it was deemed that that was part of the, the whole pleasure of the garden was that you could enjoy the sounds, smells and the visual aspects of it. So they were thinking of the whole, the whole element of it. One thing they didn't think about was susurration. Which is, um, Tell me about that. Well, susurration is the, the language of trees. So what you find is every tree, once it's in leaf and it gets a bit of wind through it, has a different sound because of the composition of the branches and the twigs and the, the leaves. We've got quite a lot of poplar around Bath. Poplar was often grown for the matchstick industry because it's got a nice soft wood that's easy to chop into small small pieces for matchsticks. But it has quite a loose leaf structure with leaves that sit on flexible twigs. And if you get any wind through a poplar tree, it has a very predictable sound, almost like water cascading down a, a waterfall. I can hear it in my head. Oh, you mentioned that poplars were used to make matchsticks, and that was in, in and around Bath. Are there any other trees that have been used in this area? Most of the woodland in Britain has been managed often quite extensively over the years. So when you look around the woodlands around Bath, for example, near Smolcombe Cemetery, we have a little woodland called Smolcombe Wood. And that woodland's a real mix of a variety of trees. For example, there's quite a lot of ash wood in that woodland and ash was often used for things like kitchen furniture, for chairs and for um, the, the fronts of kitchen cabinets. But it's often a really good firewood because it can be burnt when it's still relatively young, doesn't have to be stored for several years. Oak obviously was often used in shipbuilding because of the tannins that we spoke about. It's quite impermeable to water. And actually when the British Navy was expanded in the 16, 1700s, a lot of the oak trees were chopped down. So we lost a lot of oak that was probably a couple of hundred years old. But what were left were all the old ancient oaks that were hollow because they were no use for the shipbuilding industry. So we have this gap in the 
in the landscape where we have some really old veteran trees, but we don't have many that are three or 400 years old because um, those were often felled for, for timber. And then you get into things like, um, there's a little tree called spindle, which grows in our woodlands, often just solitary individuals. And obviously spindle would be used for sewing machines because it's a really hard, dense wood. So for parts, for machinery where you needed a dense wood, you would use a, a tree called spindle. And then things like hazel, there's hazel all over the place, which was used for um, everything from basket work to fencing to fencing posts, a little bit of firewood. And you can start to see that evolution in the landscape where um, woodlands are full of a variety of trees. Almost every tree you look at will have a different kind of use. What's your favourite tree? Oh... Um, well, being Scottish, Scots pine used to be the one I used to always say was my, my favourite tree, but I, I, I do quite like a birch tree. If you come across a silver birch, particularly a, a large one, and they don't get particularly large because they're um, a fast-growing tree that, that usually doesn't get much older than about 100 years old, but um, birch has got that lovely silver bark, and if you get one in, in summer or late summer, just turn into autumn, and you look up, they've got really small leaves, and the colour of the leaves changes but not every leaf changes at the same time, so you get all those different colours all at once on the on the canopy of it. Uh, there's a type of painting from the, the Expressionist period where um, they would just do pointillism, and it's almost like that, where um, if you look at the colours, everything's a different colour, but it makes for a, a whole picture that's, that's wonderful. Back into the city now, and in July, I went on a tour of Fairfield House. This is where Haile Selassie lived in exile during the Second World War. Manager Ras Benji let me tag along on his tour of the building. In the time of the emperor, Fairfield House was said to be a very quiet house and it was said that there was a bewildering number of clocks. Everybody knew the emperor's schedule and where he was supposed to be at a particular time of day. So at five o'clock in the morning, every morning, he'd be in the chapel where we just stood and his day would end at one o'clock in the morning. So he'd work a 20-hour day with four hours rest, and he's known for doing this the whole way through his reign in Ethiopia. This was the family dining room, and this is where the family would eat their meals together. Empress Menin is said to have made this room into a little Ethiopia. So they had some fine rugs on the floor, they had Ethiopian watercolors on the walls, and they brought with them a certain amount of the imperial silverware that they were actually forced to sell a number of months later because of the financial difficulty here. But they had two Ethiopian chefs that prepared meals that the family were used to. With the emperor's children and grandchildren going to school in Britain, dishes like shepherd's pie and trifle were soon added to the family recipes. And after a while, they had an English chef here. This story that we have here at Fairfield House it could really be looked at as a source of pride in the city of Bath because in the 1930s, and it became very obvious that they were suffering financially, the people of Bath did everything they could to support the family and look after them. Deliveries of coal would regularly arrive at Fairfield House. The Crown Prince Asper Watson actually said that once a truckload of coal arrived here by an anonymous donator and food packages would arrive, people would come here to volunteer for the Emperor and also when the local electricity board visited and they, they found that the Ethiopians were sat at their desks in winter with thick rugs across their legs, they decided to waive the fees for the family, which was very nice. 
and we live in hope that there's still such kindness for electricity companies today. Later in the episode, I met Pauline Swaby-Wallace, who manages the Windrush Centre on behalf of Bemska, the Bath Ethnic Minority Community Association. This centre is a building in the garden of Fairfield House, and here she is telling me about what it was like to come to the UK at that time. And here we are in the Windrush Centre, and there's this timeline. People are adding to it, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so, um, the timeline starts on 1948, and that was because that's the, the, the year of the Windrush leaving the Caribbean to come here. But our timeline could start even before that, because we had people that were in the war, people that settled after the war. They then had their family, but they tried to bring the family up to the expectation that, you know, you want to get better education and better work. And that has happened. So we stand here today with our professors, our, you know, our midwives, our nurses, our company directors, our teachers, because these people actually decided that, you know what, I will stay and I will put up with all the negativeness and all the the words that were thrown at them or not getting promotion because my children will get that. What's your story then, Pauline? Well, my story, I came here when I was 10, and my parents were already in England. You know, they'd come, they'd settled. So by the time we came, because I had three brothers, we came to join them, you know. So imagine coming into a new country that you're not prepared for. You just know it's England, your parents there. Again, not even knowing your parents, because many of us grew with grandparents or other family members. But, you know, you came. And once we settled in and settled into school, I met new friends, you know. Jamaica was gone under the British Empire. So, you know, you went to school with the same knowledge. You could speak English, you know, it might be an accent you may have. It was tough back then. It must have been tough years coming over and it must have been quite a culture shock. Well, the culture shock, definitely. You know, imagine you're somewhere warm and you're running up and down outside, you're in the sunshine, the food that you ate as well. And then coming here, it was cold, it was dark, you were sort of like indoors all the time. And when you did go out, you know, you had to be wrapped up in so many layers of clothes. So, um, Were you very homesick? I was for a little while, but then because I was with even my brothers who were here, because, you know, they had lived in Jamaica with me. We had things to talk about. I think if I didn't have that, then I probably would have been more homesick. But I was homesick because I missed my grandmother. I missed my extended family over that side. And I just miss going outside. But, you know, as a child, you adapt. You adapt quickly and you adapt into your new culture. But then you had all the racism to deal with, didn't you? We did. Um, Racism... Then to now, I'm not saying it's, it's still here, but it's more on the line in a way, the way people would speak to you or do things. But then people could speak to you in any way, you know, they'd spit at you, they'd throw things at you, you know, at school, you'd be calling names and you're always fighting. So, you know, can you imagine when our parents had to be calling to school and at the same time they felt that they were sending you into the right environment because you were learning but not realising what you were going through. But now we reached the win, we realised that they were going through the same thing even as adults, but because they didn't share it, they dealt with it in one way, we dealt with it in another and then we were seen as you know, rude, you know, and being expelled or put lower in classes and all of that. But I think um, now we can talk it, and we're all talking it now, so there is just so much that some people went through quietly and some people didn't, so... Obviously, 
the people that come here are near the ends of their lives. And you've got a testimony project, haven't you, to yes. try and gather this, their stories. Tell me about that. Yes, again, over the, the, the 50 years, you know, people have told their stories in different way. So we just had recorded them and just had them put down. And I imagine when people come in here, what they see on the walls will stimulate memories that they haven't had maybe for years. Yes, and and that is what it's about. It's the stimulation of the memory because uh, you know I've seen people just look and water just come to their eyes because it just brought back something else. So, <laughs> and it's such a beautiful moment. It's got this lovely chair at one end with a kind of. 1950s radiogram, hasn't it? Would you, would you call it that? We call it a gram, or we call it a blue spot. Every home that you went in, they had one of those. So there was two things in this room that you look at. The, the gram, or you would see the cabinet. The cabinet would have all your nice plates and glasses in there. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't seen that. Yes, that's beautiful, isn't it? Definitely the best china on yes. shows. That probably didn't get up very often, but <laughs> it just looked nice inside the cabinet. One of the things that the members do, not only did they record their, their memory, but we've written some books. So this was quite interesting, of food that they had missed when, when you know, they'd come here. So tell me the main spices. Well, you must have curry, you must have a scotch bonnet, you must have black pepper, salt, you know, and ginger, garlic. Those are the main base of, of any food dishes that you do <laughs> to season. Oh, Pauline, you've made my mouth water. Mm. Next up is August, and in this show we ask the question, what did the Romans ever do for Bath? We got a lot of answers to that question. Bob Whitaker, who's the archaeological advisor for Bacchus, the Bath and Counties Archaeological Society, described the route the Romans first took to Bath. Lindsay Bradley talked about the Claw Learning Centre set up to teach school groups about the Romans at the baths. But I had to include a clip of a woman who found an actual Roman skeleton in her garden wall. Here she is. Here's Helen. So who do you ring when you find a Roman skeleton in your wall? Well, we were just about to go on holiday, actually. We were just about to leave for Heathrow. And so we phoned English Heritage. They put us in touch with various other people. And we spoke to Taunton, the county offices in Taunton. And they then contacted someone called Keith Faxon, who was the archaeological consultant for Somerset then. And he got into his car and rushed up from the Fossway down near Stratton-on-the-Foss and he came up immediately and we basically had to leave him in charge. But he left us a nice report. He took lots of photographs. I also left my sister-in-law to liaise with him and she was a dentist, so that really was useful because she thought he was about in his 30s looking at his dentition. We didn't age the bones or anything like that, but that's what she thought. That's absolutely fascinating. And in front of you is the report that Keith wrote. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it really just outlines all the history of the Romans in this part of Combe Down. There was a villa just up the road, and uh, we're told that they didn't actually have cemeteries, even though probably Christian, they didn't have cemeteries then. I suppose we're talking about the year 200 or so, and people were buried at the sides of their properties, and... Looking at the size of the sarcophagus 
which is stone and it's been fashioned into, well, a coffin, you wouldn't want to take it too far because it was massive and very thick, made out of stone. It would have been very difficult to move it. So it was probably the stone that was used was mined quite close by, actually. And, of course, we have got a lot of quarries around us here, so they would have used the local stone, which was, of course, used later to build Bath. Well, you're on, you're on top of the Coombe Down stone mines, as yeah. featured in a previous episode. So this is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And it's, it's full of photographs of the actual digging work and and there is the sarcophagus yes it was the open end going east west the wet west there east there and also there are photographs see the thickness keith puts the, the coffin back together again to show how it would have been you can see how you i mean it's massive isn't it it's so thick it yeah. must have been almost impossible I'm to sure, lift i'm I would sure have they maybe they put the stone there and they must have fashioned it in situ i would imagine i who knows maybe he was quite an important man oh gosh we're looking into the esophagus from one end and you can see the well it's very clearly a pelvis bone isn't it mm, that's and extraordinary the, uh, uh, and the legs, and the legs. oh so. the legs mm. i think we should go out and have a look at him and uh, pay our respects we left it to show what it looked like the the stone and the color of the stone and the shape of it as you can see it's beautifully rounded it must have taken a long time to make that well this is wonderful so we're just behind your house in your garden and you've constructed a beautiful curved wall with the sarcophagus kind of peeping out at the bottom and the inscription that's where the head is and that's where his, his head, head is in. so that's this is that would be west south is down there so that's west east so that's what made us think he is christian i think that's wonderful and then we put this inscription i did check that and it says here lies a, a roman citizen and you're going to tell me what it says in Latin? Uh, I don't know how they pronounced it. I don't know if anybody knows how they pronounced it. So it says, Hic Iacet Civis Romanus. Well, how would you pronounce it for me? Mm, no, no differently to that. <laughs> Sounds perfect to me. He's definitely a piece there, I think. I hope so. I do hope so. September was harvest time. We turned our attention to farming. We heard about a raft of new government grants to help the environment from farming advisor Mark Smith. Biddy showed me around her land in Central Bath on which she keeps sheep, chickens, pygmy goats and three alpacas. And I met Bob Honey in his garden near Midford. Now Bob has a pedigree herd of Herefords but he's also a cider apple farmer. Here he is talking about the year in the life of an apple. Let's start from January the 1st. The, the trees are dormant. It is one of the times to prune. It comes on through. We watch the, the, the orchards come into blossom, which is absolutely wonderful. And, and then we watch for the, the fruit begin to set. Then by June, there's sometimes something called June drop. If the tree decides it's been a bit ambitious, it will drop sort of just pea-sized uh, or bean-sized apples and drop them so it can concentrate on the ones it keeps. 
different varieties will mature at different times. And with a cider apple, you do not pick from the tree. You want it to maximise its sugar production. If you pick from the tree, uh, some of the starches have not uh, converted to sugars. When they drop, more of the starches converted to sugars, and if they're left a bit longer, even more have dropped. Proper cider, you do not add sugar. The percent alcohol is entirely dictated by the percentage of sugars in the apples, and ours normally works between six and six and a half percent. So there we are, so the apples are now on the ground, left there a little bit. Commercial orchards will shake the trees, and then they're milled, because you can't press a whole apple. What's involved in milling? I only know that in terms of flour. In the smallest sense, it would be, it's a cheese grater, in effect, a mechanical, electrically driven cheese grater. And that will chop the apples into tiny little chips, and then they can be pressed. Forget about uh, treading the apples like you do with grapes. That wouldn't do it. And then they go to the press. The original ones would use straw to form a cheese. You'd put a layer of straw within um, an oak tray, in effect, and then some milled apples, and then some more straw, and then some milled apples, and so on, and build that up, and then put the pressure on. Obviously, long before the days of hydraulics, it would be a, a worm press that uh, would just screw down. The old thing about rats going in there isn't entirely fictitious. Old trees don't have much nitrogen in the fruit and nitrogen is quite useful for a full fermentation and protein of course is the best source of nitrogen. So in the farmhouse fat they might put a piece of ham or beef and it would be dissolved and the nitrogen released and that would be um, uh, used by the yeasts to help improve the flavour of the cider. Well, they're not going to use some of their expensive beef or pork in the farm worker's cider. So the odd dead cat or dead hen would go in there because you're talking about something sufficiently acidic and sufficient alcohol content that um, it'll kill any pathogen. And so it, it did happen and will be beautifully dissolved and improve the quality of the cider. This year we've had a baking summer followed by an incredibly wet July and August. Does that have an impact on the trees? It will, and I can't tell you what. Some varieties will like it. I mean, there's so many apple varieties. I mean, in our small orchard, we've got 10 different varieties. Uh, Brown Snout and Harry Masters Jersey, Slack Me Girdle, The Ten Commandments, Yarlington Mill, um, Stembridge Cluster and a few others. And um, they'll all benefit differently. It, it, it's one of the pleasures of a mixed orchard. Oh, I could listen to Bob talking about Slack Me Girdles forever, but we must move on. Bath has had a radical past, and to find out more, I travelled back to the 19th century with the local historian Andrew Swift. He was leading a walk as part of Bathscape's Walking Festival, which told the story of the struggle to get the vote and the importance of the Chartists in Bath. But in this clip, we move into the 20th century and hear about the women's fight for votes with Professor June Hannam, who tells us about Bath's role in the suffragette movement. Bath has become now quite well known for having a really important 
um, branch of the suffragette movement. And this is partly because the Blathwaite family, um, this is Colonel Lindley Blathwaite, who was a retired colonel from the Indian Army, living in Bath Eastern with his wife Emily, his daughter Mary, and their son, who then went to Germany. And what is wonderful for the historian, and why we know a lot about it, is that the two women of the family wrote copious diaries, and they were writing diaries from the late 19th century onwards. But we know from their diaries that when they were going around to friends' houses, they saw literature about votes for women, and then they find that there are some talks going on in Bristol and in London, and Mary, the daughter, goes to London and hears some of the leaders of the Women's Social and Political Union speaking, and she gets very fired up by this, comes back, wears her Votes for Women badge for the first time, actually puts Votes for Women posters on post boxes in um, Bath Easton, all of which is seen as a very radical thing to do. And then they go to hear two of the leaders of the movement, one of whom is Annie Kenny, who was a mill girl from Manchester and is one of the few working class leaders of the movement. In the local area, she becomes seen as the most charismatic kind of speaker. And a really big turning point is in 1908. She has actually made the regional organiser for this area and she goes to live in Bristol. And so Mary Blathwaite actually goes and stays with her in Bristol and learns all kinds of things about how to run a meeting and chalking pavements for meetings and so on. And is this Eagle House? Is that the name of the house in Bath Easton? Yes, yeah, so um, the house where the Blathwaites lived was Eagle House. It's still there, but it had extensive grounds at the time. And of course, the parents, they want to do something to help. So they tend to open Eagle House and the grounds to tea parties to raise money for the movement. They have lots of meetings there. And when women start to get arrested for throwing stones through windows and so on, they use their place as somewhere that they can recuperate. So Eagle House becomes a sort of hub. Speakers stay there. And I understand that they planted trees, is that right? They do. So when suffrage people visited, they were encouraged to plant a tree and there was a, a name plaque underneath. And those people who went to prison, their trees are in the middle and then others are more around the circle. And you planted a different tree if you've been to prison. And Colonel Lindley Blathwaite, who was an amateur photographer, would take their photographs. So what we have is this enormous collection of photographs of the suffragettes who went and, and used the house. But of course, the interesting thing is that the photographs still remain, but the trees all but one, have now been bulldozed. That's so sad. Because when the house was bought, eventually, not only was the house converted, but later on, a housing estate was built around it. And so the extensive grounds are now a housing estate. And they have identified one tree as being one of the original suffrage trees. And so you might speculate on why did they want them to plant trees and one could think about it supposed to being a lasting reminder. It, it shows really, and I think we all know, that women involved in that movement knew they were involved in something important that would be seen as important and they knew about their significance in history, I think. And it was the sense of wanting to not just write books about it but also to leave lasting reminders. But unfortunately, it's only the photographs that we have. This episode is about Radical Bath. 
How radical do you think Bath is or was or has been over the years? I think Bath has a history of radicalism, which is often overlooked because it is seen as Romans and Jane Austen. I was impressed hearing a talk when I was at the Bath Museum of Work one day about really quite radical Walcott back in the 70s. And I was living here in the 70s and it reminded me of how different Bath was then, that it was not a very posh place with lots of very rich houses, but that a lot of houses that were in need of repair. And you have Bath Arts, for example, in Walcott Street. They were reminding us of how in the 70s they had a huge kind of ecological fair down at Kensington Meadows in which people came along demonstrating alternative forms of power, wind power, solar power. You had people coming along with organic foods. Walcott Reclamation has started, of course, about how do we reuse things and don't just throw them away when houses were being pulled down. And so I think at different times in its history, Bath had, has a radical character, but things change over time, don't they? Moving on in time, Annie Beardsley talked about her memories of the bypass protest in the early 90s, but we finished bang up to date with me joining in a kiddical mass campaign for safer streets for children to cycle in. Hi, did you go on the ride today? Yes. And uh, what was it like? Uh, we got stuck in traffic. <laughs> did you? Oh, and uh, did you just have to stop at that point? Yeah. So do you cycle a lot? No. No. Not usually. Not usually. We walk a lot. And you've got a very cool helmet. Do you always wear that? Yeah. Good. <laughs> and do you think the infrastructure is changing to suit cyclists' needs a bit more? Um, there are some more uh, segregated cycle lanes, but not enough. So what would you like to see, ideally? Because Bath was kind of built hundreds of years ago, wasn't it? Not for cyclists, but certainly not for traffic either. Yeah, I'd like to see, there, you know, clearly with events like this, there are lots of people, children, families who want to ride on the road, and I'd like to see people put at the kind of forefront of decision-making and not cars. And do you think um, that Bath and North East Somerset Council is taking note? Are there any changes? Um, well, I'm actually a councillor myself. Uh, Are you? <laughs> I'm a Green Party councillor for uh, Lambridge Ward. One of the reasons I, I stood to be elected is because I was doing this and I thought I want to see more change. So I think Bath is taking, Bath and North East Somerset are taking excellent steps. Uh, we've, we've seen the first protected cycle lane is just along here on Beckford Road. It's just the fact that it's only 200 metres long is an issue, obviously. So in the last four years, we've seen um, I think the total was, um, I think it's one kilometre of uh, protected cycle lane, which is not enough. So I like what I'm seeing and I like what they're doing. We just want more and faster because our children are children now and they are growing up. And uh, we need this now because we need people to be able to shift from taking their car to walking and cycling. So not just a kind of middle-aged man in Lycra cycling. We need everyone to cycle, normal people in normal clothes, on normal bikes with baskets and shopping, just going about their day-to-day life and cycling to school and stuff, and not just a kind of hardcore road bike um, Lycra person. November arrived and it seemed a good time to hunker down and explore Bath at night. I went to the Herschel Museum in the centre of Bath where manager Joe Middleton told me about the Herschels, William and his sister Caroline, who between them 
discovered Uranus and seven or eight comets. Our very own Batman Dan Merritt took us on a bat walk around Coombe Down and I also visited the West of England Falconry Centre in Newton St Lowe to find out about owls from manager Naomi Johns. This clip is one of the staff telling us about Bella the Rock Owl in a flying display. But um, her name is Finally, to finish off the year in the depths of winter, we celebrated three grand schemes happening in Bath. Dr Amy Frost told us about the renovation of Beckford's Tower up on Lansdowne and Joanna Rolfe showed me Bathhampton Meadows, one of the National Trust's 20 green corridors. I also went to see around the newly opened Cleveland Pools with manager Sam Grief. As someone who has a bit of a fear of cold water, I was intrigued to meet three women who had just had a swim in the pool, which at the time was 10 degrees centigrade. Meet Siobhan, Rachel and Victoria. Siobhan, hi, you've just got out of the water. What, what was it like for you today? It was amazing today and I think the sun absolutely helps. Anything in the sun is, just feels like a holiday. I am the worst at getting in. But once I'm in, it feels incredible. Yeah, it does. And my skin feels kind of, is, it ting- is your skin yeah. tingly? My skin feels super tingly yeah. and just really fresh, zingy. Okay, yeah. so fresh and tingly is what you get to feel. So what, what, but what makes you think, yes, today I'm going to go down to Cleveland Pool and get into a very cold water? We've been doing it for a few weeks now and I'm very aware that the, the more regularly you do it, the easier it's going to be. And I think if I stopped for a week, it would probably be harder to come back. How often do you come down here? I've been once a week for the last four or five weeks. Mm. I think to me it just is doing something a little bit crazy in a busy week is just feels really refreshing and good for the soul. So, uh, yeah, I think that's why I do it. Mm. I'm always glad when I have done it. Well, I think it leaves me with a sort of feeling of being a bit invincible afterwards because you've kind of done something that was quite hard, but, you know, not 
so far out of your comfort zone that it feels dangerous or anything. But it, yeah, it sort of leaves you with a feeling like you can do hard things. And, and yeah, I think it's really positive for the rest of the week. Has swimming always been a thing for you? Have you always loved swimming? I do really like swimming, but I've been fairly feeble in the sea uh, and in colder temperatures. So that was my sort of motivation a bit for doing this, was to kind of get a bit more used to cold water so that next summer I can stride into the sea like I've always seen people doing. (laughs) Yeah. And what about you, Siobhan? Are you a natural swimmer? Have you been swimming all your life? Uh, similar to Rachel, I've always loved swimming, but I've only just, in lockdown, I started outdoor swimming. And I started because I hit 50 and I couldn't have a party. So I decided to do 50 outdoor swims for my 50th. And the rule was it had to be somewhere new or somebody new. And so that was my goal and I it took me ages but it was such a nice challenge to have at a time when you couldn't do much else show me the kits that you wear because this isn't just a question of putting on a swimming costume and diving in is it oh my lord describe that for me so this was a birthday present from my daughter for my 50th and it's some kind of retro 50s bathing cap got plastic flowers all over it sometimes they molt do you know i think my mum had one of those exactly it's so 50s isn't it it's gorgeous i feel amazing in it i know i today i, I covered my covered it with a bobble today hat. you had a bob oh you had to bobble hat over this beautiful hat two hats two hats is key honestly people will tell you all the things do you wear wetsuits i sometimes do but it's much nicer if you don't because you get that real feeling on your skin and it's much quicker afterwards to get dressed i've seen people wearing gloves socks boots yes gloves socks hat or two hats essential then they have to be easy to get off afterwards again because otherwise you as i have done tie yourself literally in knots in the changing room (laughs) and what about when you get out rachel how quickly do you get warm um, well, you're told to get dry and get your clothes on really quickly because I think after 10 minutes or so you can have something that's called the after drop. So you feel okay afterwards and then after a little bit of time your organs have not warmed up. So you get this sensation that's called the after, sh- after drop, which I think is just when you go very, very shivery. Now yeah. you're drinking something. What's that? I've got a hot chocolate. <laughs> essential. That's, I think that for me is the main essential, <laughs> is bringing something hot to drink afterwards. This is like the carrot, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that, isn't that one of the nicest things about it, is that you feel justified in having a treat afterwards and, um, yeah, a nice hot drink. Well done, all of you. I'm absolutely <laughs> amazed that you could get into such cold water. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, weren't they inspiring? And what a way to finish the year. Thanks go to them and every other contributor this year. They are all credited in the show notes. And I so look forward to bringing you lots more exciting episodes this year. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. Don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. And please, please, please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Bathscape, visit their website, bathscape.co.uk. Thanks must go to to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. I'll see you next month.